Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today we leave the U.S. and head to beautiful New Zealand, where an unsuspecting traveler would go on the last date of her life. Small talk is a waste of verbal space, so let's dive in. Grace Mullane was a beautiful, young, aspiring artist from Essex, England, and was absurdly talented. She specialized in these badass modern watercolor paintings of animals, people, and nature. Seriously, her portfolio is mind-blowing. I'll be sure to link it for you in her highlight on my Instagram. I would, without a doubt, buy her work. I even checked if it was still an option, but spoiler alert, it doesn't look like it is. She had a huge group of friends, was close with her brothers and her parents. Her social life was popping and her wing liner was on point. Grace was goals. She had recently graduated college where she got a degree in advertising and marketing, but instead of hopping straight into the stressors of life, Grace decided to take an entire year off and dedicate it to traveling anywhere and everywhere she had ever dreamt of. How many of us wish we had the balls to do this? Grace spent half of October and most of November of 2018 in South America traveling with friends and had just hopped a plane to Auckland, New Zealand, the next leg of her trip, landing there on November 20th. After a long flight and some unsavory weather, Grace was ready to settle in and checked into the base backpackers hostel. For those of you who don't know, a hostel is a place where people from other countries can come and stay relatively cheaply. This one was only $17 a night. Generally, you have to bring and prepare your own food, and you sleep in a room full of bunk beds, but you're not there for the accommodations, you're there for the travel. The hostel is just a place to sleep and sometimes make friends along the way. This particular hostel is in the middle of the business district, so it's not secluded at all, and it's known for its social life, having a rooftop and a basement bar. Since landing in New Zealand, she was in constant contact with her family. She was in love with the country. Her family says that she was quote-unquote bombarding them with photos, and they loved seeing her this happy. Nearly every day, she would talk with at least one person from her family, filling them in on the details of her day, what she saw, what she did, the usual. But all that stopped on November 30th. Grace's mother communicated with her on the morning of the 29th via instant messenger, having no inkling that that would be the last contact she would ever have with her daughter. Grace's 22nd birthday was on Sunday, December 2nd, and while her family was a little put off by the fact that they had just stopped hearing from her three days ago, when she didn't respond to any happy birthday phone calls or text messages, they got a bad feeling. The hostel that Grace was staying at was really receptive to the family's concerns and start asking residents if slash when they had last seen her, and her roommate says that they had seen her on Saturday, December 1st. On that same day, someone commented on her profile picture on Facebook and she liked it, so the hostel roommate's timeline adds up. But the roommate says that Grace's stuff is still sitting in her room. Tuesday was Grace's brother's birthday, so certainly if she was okay, she would reach out and wish him a happy birthday. But Tuesday came and went, and nothing. Not a single soul heard from Grace. That was it. Her family knew that something was officially wrong, gave it to the end of the night, and reported Grace missing the next morning, Wednesday, December 5th. Reporting someone missing from another country isn't easy, but in this case, the UK and New Zealand didn't skip a beat and even kept in contact with her family multiple times a day with updates or to ask for any further information that they might need. All businesses around the area started checking their CCTV footage, and the Sky City Casino Complex catches her walking in around 7.15pm on Saturday evening. She was wearing a short, flowy black dress with white shoes and was smiling. Nothing seemed like it could possibly be wrong. She was also wearing a $5,000 euro prize draw wristband, which translates to $5,558 US dollars, so you can imagine she planned to return. Authorities immediately start checking her devices and social media accounts. Unfortunately, the last post she made to social media was on the same day that her mother had last spoken to her. To make things worse, both of the cell phones she had taken with her were going straight to voicemail. Say it with me now, if your phone is dead, it means you're either committing a crime or you're the victim of one. At this point, authorities say that there's no sign of foul play, but they have to say that. If there's no blood, no evidence of a crime, etc., that's what you're going to hear. But us crime sleuths can put two and seven together and realize that when you stop hearing from someone, get no response to birthday messages, they don't reach out on their own brother's birthday, their phones stop working, and their shit is left behind at the hotel, or hostel in this case, something is foul and it's the play. 
On December 6th, her father hops on a plane and gets to Auckland around 7 a.m. where he's met by police. That afternoon, they waste absolutely zero time and hold a press conference. It's during this press conference that they release more CCTV footage of Grace that night. After being seen at Sky City at 7.15 p.m., she's seen at 9.41 p.m. at the City Life Hotel with an unknown 26-year-old male. Police have identified and spoken to this man and announced that they consider him a person of interest in her disappearance. They also know that they have a location of interest, which isn't something we ever really hear in the U.S., it's a room at the City Life Hotel, which they say is currently being searched. And as optimistic as no foul play sounds, authorities say they hold grave fears for Grace's safety. Now, in the U.S., police generally state that they believe a person is alive until evidence is there to prove otherwise, but Auckland is being a little more transparent in their concerns, probably because there's clear footage of Grace entering the City Life Hotel, but none of her leaving. People don't vanish, but there are a hell of a lot of suitcases coming in and out of that building. As I continue researching this hotel, it looks like there's an option to rent out rooms as apartments, and further articles refer to the room being searched as an apartment. So this unknown male seems to have been living there and not just as a guest, which could make this a little easier. If he was ever seen leaving with a suitcase, that would put up a major red flag because people don't walk out of their apartments with suitcases unless they're traveling, and homeboy isn't traveling, he's being questioned by police. One day later, someone on Tinder remembers running across his Grace's Tinder account and seeing that it noted she was only about eight and a half miles away from them. They were in Kingsland. From what I've read, your Tinder location will use your last location if your phone is turned off, which we know hers is. So this could wind up being really helpful. I did a circumference map of 8.6 miles surrounding Kingsland, and Kingsland is basically smack dab in the middle of Auckland. And much of the radius is waterway, so you can probably cut that out. So wherever Grace was when her phone was shut off is probably going to be within that radius. Obviously, I'll add this map to her highlight at the top of my Instagram at the Heather Ashley, so you can check it out for yourself. Later that day, police give another update, and it's a big one. Her investigation has escalated from a missing persons case to a homicide investigation, and that is without her body being found. The New Zealand Herald quotes Detective Inspector Scott Beard as saying, Sadly, the evidence we've gathered to this point of the inquiry has established that this is a homicide. They add that they've also detained the person of interest, and he's being questioned at the Auckland Central Police Station. What did they find in that room? On top of the person of interest and the apartment of interest, they now state that they're investigating a vehicle of interest in reference to Grace's murder, a red 2016 Toyota Corolla rented by the person of interest. According to Stuff.co, the person of interest rented it just before lunchtime on, wait for it, December 2nd and returned it the following day. He's obviously dumb as shit because rental cars are all equipped with GPS trackers in case any of you assholes decide to steal them. The car was rented out to another person, so it takes police a second to find the car, but they do, and then they start tracking down everywhere it had driven since Grace went missing on the first. And while police have been really transparent and forthcoming about the rapid progress of this case, I have to notice how elusive they're being about the person they seem to be pretty confident played a role in Grace's murder. In the U.S., we get names right off the bat, even if they wind up not being the perpetrator. News stations are filing records requests, we're swarming intake sheets, but it's almost like they're interviewing a ghost. During the press conference, someone from the press asked Detective Beard if the two met on Tinder, and he wouldn't comment on it. But this is the second time that Tinder has come up in this investigation, and I'm getting the feeling that it might not be a coincidence. On December 9th, dozens of police vehicles are seen stopped and cordoning off what looks like a crime scene at the Waitakere Ranges, a 36-minute drive from Auckland. The Waitakere Ranges are these particularly beautiful palm-covered mini-mountains littered with elaborate waterfalls and crystal blue waters. But the crime scene tape and tarped tents quickly taint their beauty as officers in hazmat suits and blue face masks walk around the area, taking bags of evidence from the foliage and placing it into a large black police van. On 
On December 9th, 2018, Grace Mullane's body is found just 32 feet off of the side of the road. Later that day, our 26-year-old ghost is officially charged with her murder. He'll have his first day in court on Monday, December 10th at 10.30 a.m. Now, even though he rented the car on Grace's birthday, December 2nd, police asked the public if and where they may have seen the vehicle between the hours of 6 and 9.30 a.m. on the 3rd. We get a little Easter egg of information before the court date that Grace messaged one of her friends that she was, in fact, going out with a guy she had met on Tinder on the night she disappeared. December 10th comes and goes, and Tinder Ghost has his hearing. He doesn't enter any plea and files for and is denied what is referred to as name suppression, which isn't even a thing in the U.S. It turns out in New Zealand, no one can publish your name prior to your first court hearing, and at that hearing, you can file to have your name kept a secret. Even though the suppression was denied, the New Zealand Herald reports that his attorney planned to appeal the decision, so he does get interim name suppression for at least 21 days. That gives us until New Year's Eve to refer to him as Tinder Ghost. But the Daily Mail serves him a huge fuck you and names the bastard. Tinder Ghost is 26-year-old Jesse Kempson. Remember that comment on her profile photo from the first? The one that she liked? It was him. He posted that comment at 9.29 p.m., just 12 minutes before she was last seen alive. By his first court appearance, Jesse's comment goes poof. So someone is doing some serious damage control, but again, screenshots are forever. A little sleuthing down the Jesse Kempson internet rabbit hole starts with him seeming like a normal, good-looking guy who dabbles in softball. Oh, and he has a fucking child. A daughter. But being a father doesn't make you a good human. Should I say that a little louder for the people in the back? His daughter lives back in Australia, and he has no relationship with her mother, and frankly, I haven't seen any evidence to suggest that he has a relationship with his daughter either. His own grandmother was down to talk with the Daily Mail at the court hearing and described her grandson as a very confused young man and a strange one. And a strange family member throws around the whole broken home theory that Jesse got fucked up because his parents divorced, which resulted in him living with his grandparents for a while and then with his mom. But let's cut the shit. My parents are divorced and you don't see me out there murdering tourists. According to the Daily Mail, Jesse was currently estranged from his parents and grandparents due to a difference in opinion on life and hadn't spoken with him in years. A difference in opinion on life is a really fancy way of saying nope. His next hearing is scheduled for January 23rd of 2019. The New Zealand Herald continues their amazing coverage into this case, which police have deemed Operation Gorami, which is a type of fish native to Asia. I tried really hard to figure out what in Santa's village this had to do with Grace, but it turns out that the name was just randomly generated. Police indicate that even though her body has been recovered and a suspect has been charged with her murder, they still have weeks, if not months, of investigating to do to secure a conviction. While police continue their investigation, so does the media. Stuff.co speaks to a woman who was also supposed to meet Jesse on December 1st. They've been talking on Tinder for the past six months, and that night was the night he finally wanted to meet up, but lucky for her, she was busy. Instead, he met up with Grace. But the death of his Tinder date didn't stop him from continuing on with his potential love life. He simply made plans to meet up with her on December 4th, the day after he used a rental car to dispose of Grace's body. The two never decided on a location, but continued to talk until the 6th when he ghosted her. That pun was not planned at all. Police spoke with her about her communications with Jesse and whether he'd ever thrown up any red flags, and Stuff.co reports that the only odd thing about him was that he had a foot fetish and wanted to see photos of her feet and would ask for photos of her in specific types of shoes. He only has three photos on his public Facebook account, where he goes by Jesse Shane. You're welcome. One of his face, one of the word inspiration in bold, and the third, a picture of feet looking down from the sky tower. If you can't see my face, it's the Chrissy Teigen ooh face. In a report by Hannah Loca, at some point, Jesse responded to an ad for a roommate and ultimately moved in with three women, but was asked to leave after just six weeks. One of the girls saying he made them all feel uncomfortable. While living with Jesse, she says he was a quote-unquote blatant liar. He made up these random lies about himself and his parents buying properties and restaurants and listed a specific one that he said he was in negotiations of purchasing. 
but Homeboy forgot how to Google and didn't realize that the restaurant he claimed to be in the middle of purchasing was owned by one of his roommate's families. She said that he was never aggressive or sexual towards his female roommates, but when he would drink, it was like he had a split personality, that he would puff up and turn into this arrogant asshole, and even his voice would change. Creepy. When they decided to ask him to move out, he played it cool by saying that his mom had just died, and he needed to leave anyways. His mom is very much still alive. He left and never paid his last month's rent and allegedly snuck back into the apartment one last time when no one was home. It gets better, though. The roommate went to visit her family one night at the restaurant they owned, the one Jesse said he was buying, and he was working there as the fucking bartender. When they locked eyes, he walked out and they never saw him again. One of Jesse's former softball teammates tells the Daily Mail Australia that he was creepy and that his life revolved around talking to girls, which coincides with a statement from one of his previous female roommates who said that he was constantly nose-deep in dating websites. The softball teammate said that he and some other men on the team stepped in once when Jesse tried to start dating someone they knew, warning her that there was something off about this guy. On December 11th, Detective Beard makes a plea for help from the public and a really specific one at that. He wants to know if anyone has stumbled across a discarded Atlas Trade hardwood long handle round mouth shovel at any point in time since December 2nd. Translated, it's a pointy shovel where the metal part is red. They believe it to be related to Grace's death, but don't specify how, though we can make some assumptions. And even though authorities continue to be really secretive about this case, they do announce that when Grace's body was found, it had not been dismembered. So that's new, and something relatively positive in the scheme of how inherently negative this entire situation is. On the same day, Grace's body is officially released back into the custody of her parents and prepared to be flown home for her burial. She was laid to rest on January 10, 2019 in Wickford, almost a month later. On January 15, 2019, the now 27-year-old is back in court. Happy fucking birthday to you, asshole. Hope it was a real riot. He pled not guilty, which means he will go to trial and every detail of this case will be plastered all over the media. Great choice if you're innocent, terrible choice if you're guilty. The trial is set for 10 months down the road on November 4th of 2019, almost an entire year after allegedly killing Grace on her 22nd birthday. This entire time, New Zealand residents have still not been allowed to know Jesse's name. The name suppression continues, and not a single media outlet in the country can legally publish his name. They even throw a lot of shade at foreign reporters who disregard their weird-ass law that is almost impossible to enforce. There are even threats of prosecution to anyone they come to find has leaked his name to international media. But what about any other woman he's possibly attacked before? If A.J. Ayula's name hadn't been published in the Mackenzie Lewitt case, his previous victim may have never come forward. But whatever, this is America, and in America, there are no secrets unless you're a Clinton or a Trump. I went there, but I went both directions. Put your pitchforks down. While we wait for Jesse's trial to begin, Jesse's family makes it their personal mission to help women across the world, specifically homeless women. They take donated and often luxury bags and fill them to the brim with necessities as well as some straight-up gifts. More than 500 handbags were donated and distributed by October of 2019. On November 4th, 2019, the trial of Jesse Kempson begins. Jurors are told not to look at any form of media about the case, Stuff.co reporting that the judge told them that a detail of the case, which has been previously published, is demonstrably wrong. You have my attention. Seriously, though, this really piqued my interest, but spoiler alert, I know the ending of this and I still don't know what he was referring to. Grace's family take the trip from Europe to attend what is scheduled to be a grueling and emotional five-week trial. The entire courtroom is full to the point where people are left standing by the doors, where they actually allow them to stand for most of the trial. In the U.S., if you don't have a seat, you move your feet. On November 5th, the prosecutor makes his opening statements. He tells the court that Grace went back to Jesse's apartment, died there, and then buried her body on Scenic Drive. But what he says next is where it gets interesting. The fact that she died there is not what's being disputed, according to him. It's how she died that will be argued. 
He says the before and after of Grace going into Jesse's apartment are well documented on CCTV footage and cannot be argued. What he intends to focus on is what exactly happened to Grace after she entered that room and before she died in it. And so it begins. This is a trial, so buckle up. Information is going to fly at you faster than you know what to do with it. On the night of December 1st, Grace and Jesse went to a few bars and restaurants and are even captured kissing at one point before going to his place. The prosecution claims that at some point after she entered the room, Grace was strangled to death. And we know from the Chris Watts and Sidney Luth cases that strangulation isn't easy, nor is it quick. It takes you around 10 seconds to pass out from strangulation. Once someone has lost consciousness, it takes 10 to 20 seconds for them to regain it, assuming the pressure to their neck has let up. For example, in an MMA fight, someone gets into a chokehold and passes out, the fighter releases them, and they're awake in 10 to 20 seconds. While unconscious, if the pressure doesn't let up, a person will remain limp and eventually go into convulsions. Someone would have to actively strangle a person for upwards of five minutes, never releasing pressure before they would die from it. Never in the history of fucking Narnia will death by strangulation have any form of accidental defense. A strangulation death takes time, effort, and endurance, but let's continue. Jesse claims that he and Grace had consensual sex on his apartment floor, then says he took a shower, fell asleep in the shower because who doesn't fall asleep standing up with water running down them as it turns cold? He eventually woke up, citing he climbed into bed and assumed that Grace had gone home. Because why? He happened to misplace her on the fucking floor where he had left her? Anyways, according to Jesse, he woke up the next morning and saw Grace lying on the floor with blood coming from her nose. So, was it murder, or did she hide while he was in the shower and then die on his floor after he climbed into bed? Sometimes I'm really bummed by the stupid questions I have to type out. The prosecutor notes that bleeding from the nose is a common side effect of strangulation due to the blood pooling in the brain. He also states that Grace had bruising on her arms and chest as if someone was holding her down. Imagine the amount of pressure that would need to be applied to you to bruise your arms and your chest. Imagine being Grace. Next, we hear about his Google search history, Lord, please let no one ever check mine. At just 1.21 a.m. on Grace's birthday, Jesse hops on his computer and starts Googling. First Googling, Waitakere Rainforest, which we know is where he dumped Grace's body. That's a really specific first search. Tell me he hadn't thought about this beforehand. Next, he Googles hottest fire, which when Googled, flat out gives you the answer, pictures, and everything I did it myself. But it gets worse. Right after Googling hot fires, Jesse decides to watch some porn. With the body he seems to be wanting to burn, lying lifelessly on the floor of his apartment. Just five minutes later, five, he has a mini post-mortem photo shoot with Grace's dead body. He takes one picture of her entire body and another of her foot. What the fuck? He takes a three-minute break before he decides he needs just one more picture of Grace's dead body. This is not the mindset of a guy in a panic or even a guy who's ashamed of what he's done. 20 minutes later, he watches some more porn for about 15 minutes, and at some point we can assume that he slept, but not well, because by 6.01 a.m., he's back to the Google drawing board searching for a place to rent a car. It took him seven whole minutes to book one. A half an hour later, he searches for large bags near me and winds up on a luggage website. We can only assume that he went over and touched Grace's body or maybe tried to move it because 30 minutes later, he Googles rigor mortis. At 7.17 a.m., he searches online for large bags again. At 8 a.m., he takes a break from his murder cleanup plot and chats with a girl on Tinder and makes plans to see her later that afternoon. Yes, that afternoon. But at 9.15, Jesse's back to searching for bags. A half hour later, he searches for carpet cleaner. Weird, I thought she had just bled a little from her nose. At noon, he Googles rigor mortis again, as if he's enjoying some kind of sick science experiment with Grace's stages of decomposition. 
Between 1.02 p.m. and 2.50 p.m., he spends almost two hours searching yet again for large bags and duffel bags with wheels, which honestly offends me in the most absurd way. You want to take the easy way out of removing her body from your apartment? Fuck you. But in between those bag searches, he also Googles the time in London as if he might have planned to use her phone to pretend to be her or something like Brian Sluss did in the Monica Moynan case. At this point, he seems to start to feel a little paranoia, so he searches for breaking news in New Zealand, likely trying to see if Grace had been reported missing yet. Then he Googles if there are vultures in New Zealand, seemingly hopeful that they would aid in his destruction of evidence. The defense takes a quick whack at this shit show, I mean, it is court after all, and they claim that Grace wasn't murdered, she died as a result of rough consensual sex. I'm just gonna say it, it takes longer to kill someone by manual strangulation than the average man lasts in bed. Don't try and tell anyone that choking someone to the point of death during sex is an accident. He doesn't defend Jesse's behavior and instead says that he responded how some young men would when faced with unexpected death and that his client didn't act responsibly. One, it's not unexpected when you choked her for a solid five minutes. Two, that dude took a fucking nap. Three, he could have called 911 at any point in the day, but he didn't. Instead, he googled fires, large bags, watched porn, took photos of her dead body, rented a car, looked at carpet cleaners, and scheduled a date. Frankly, he sounds like a pretty organized guy in a time of murder crisis. Court continues, and we learn that the GPS on the rental car is not what led them to Grace's body. It was this dumbass's phone. There's this little area on the side of the road where Grace was found where you can park your car. From there, there's a straight-up path that leads you into the rainforest. We don't have cool things like rainforest in the U.S. Hold on, let me Google that. Wrong, we have one in Puerto Rico. Moving on. Right off the path, there was some very obviously disturbed brush. Jesse had dug a hole, placed Grace in it, and broken off twigs and branches to cover the grave he had put her in. Because when you tell nature to act natural, that's what it does. When they unearthed Grace, she was still contorted into a fetal position and inside of the suitcase he had taken her out of his hotel in. Police officers had to carry Grace out of the rainforest, still inside that suitcase, on a stretcher. I cannot imagine being her parents and watching all this right now. The court adjourns and resumes the next morning. On the 6th, the court shows a photo of Grace smiling in front of a Christmas tree at 5.45 p.m. They state that it was the last photo she ever sent to her family. Even though we'd been told prior that they hadn't heard from her in days, the evidence is what the evidence is. Between 5.45 p.m. and 5.47 p.m., Jesse meets Grace by the Christmas tree, and they head into Sky City together where they have some drinks. During this time, she's texting a friend of hers, saying that the date is going really well, and Homeboy is buying cocktails for everyone at the bar. They leave about two and a half hours later, and according to Stuff.co, who covers this trial like a boss, the pair are seen walking into a Mexican restaurant at 7.12 p.m. By 8.37 p.m., they're at the Bluestone Room, which is a bar, and Jesse leans in to kiss her, which Grace seems a little iffy about, but as the night goes on, the kissing continues, and this wackadoo even twirls her hair and strokes her face, y'all. I'll be adding that to the list of red flags. If your Tinder date starts twirling your hair and stroking your face, it's time for the check, and for your friend to call you and pretend she's in labor. It's time to go. At 9.20 p.m., Grace goes to the bathroom, and while she's gone, this creep goes through her purse and takes a sip of her drink. What the fuck? At 9.41 p.m., the two are back at Jesse's hotel apartment and heading up the elevator to the room she would never leave alive. Next, we learn about what they found in Jesse's apartment. Stuff.co reports that in the following days, they did luminol testing, and spoiler alert, they found a lot more than a trickle of blood that had come from her nose. They found blood evidence underneath the window of his apartment, at the foot of his bed in the form of footprints, and in two places between his bed and his dresser, one that was almost 12 inches wide and another that was 27 and a half inches wide. They also find blood on the outside and inside of an empty suitcase in his room. It sounds like he tried out a suitcase he had before he went on his incessant Googling spree to find a bigger one. But the next part is what blows my mind. They found blood in his refrigerator. An expert testified that it looked to be blood cast off from an object. So Jesse's fucking refrigerator door was open when he was slinging something around that had her blood on it. On top of renting a rug doctor to clean up his crime scene, he went out and bought six different kinds of cleaner and just kept the bottles in his bathroom when he was done. One of the bottles had what appeared to be blood on it. 
and all blood evidence found in Jesse's room came back positive for Grace. This guy is seriously in the running for the worst criminal ever. Court is adjourned for the day and starts back up the next morning of November 7th. Jesse's defense team tries to dwindle down the shock value of the massive bloodstains between his bed and dresser by saying the attempted cleanup could have made them appear larger than they originally were. If this is your defense, you're fucked. Next, they try and argue the fact that none of Jesse's DNA was found on Grace's body that had been in the ground for days. Strong argument, I'm sure the rainforest is often chose as a body dumping site due to its preservation of biological evidence. Someone brings up Grace's toxicology report stating that her BAC was twice the legal limit as if it fucking matters, like being drunk is permission to get murdered. It's also irrelevant. Your body ferments during decomposition and gives off blood alcohol levels. We saw this with Shanann Watts. She had consumed absolutely zero alcohol but had a shocking BAC when her toxicology reports came back. And that was only a few days after death. Grace had been buried for nearly double the time Shanann had. Court adjourns again and resumes the following Monday on November 10th. They speak to a woman who had been on a Tinder date with Jesse on November 22nd, a week and a half before he killed Grace. They had sex. He choked her during, but she had told him prior to that that she was into it. She didn't sustain any injuries. They had some pizza, and then she left his apartment, but left her glasses behind. She knocked on the door, but the fuckwad didn't answer. She asked him for weeks to get her glasses back, but he never returned them. However, he was down to meet up for sex again, which she was less than interested in at that point. The plot twist comes in where we learn that one of the bars Jesse took Grace to on December 1st was a bar that this witness worked at. She asked him again when she could get her glasses back and he told her that night. That night is when she could get her glasses back. When the witness saw the report on the news about Grace being missing, she contacted police. High five to this chick. The next witness is the same girl we learned about earlier in the case who had never met him, but whom he had kept messaging after he killed and disposed of Grace. According to Stuff.co, she tells the court that Jesse told her he was in defeat, domination, and strangulation. He told her it made him feel superior and in control. Red fucking flag. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. The defense questions her honesty about him, saying he liked strangulation, and she's all, uh, it's in my original statement to police. They never asked me about it. I wrote about it because he asked to strangle me. The defense says that there's no discussion of strangulation between the two of them, and she reminds them that she didn't just randomly decide to say that he wanted to strangle her, because apparently the only form of communication is Tinder. Phone calls didn't exist in 2019. If it didn't happen on Tinder chat, did it really happen at all? This poor defense has nothing. I shit you not, the court adjourns for morning tea before they come back. A murder trial is paused for tea. When everyone is refreshed, they come back and interview a third Tinder date that was straight out of a Lifetime movie and not the Christmas kind. I am grateful now more than ever that I was married before all these free dating apps came out and it became a creep's playground. The two met on Tinder prior and were about to have their second date. She had grabbed a bus into the city, but Jesse somehow figured out where she was coming from, and surprise, there he was at one of the stops. He said he wanted to have a drink at the backpacker's bar, but that he wanted to change first, so he invited her to his room where he poured her one glass of wine after another. She told him that she didn't want to have sex, but that wasn't a part of his plan, so she says he pulled her onto his bed and then straddled her head and tried to get her to perform what is referred to as a sexual act on him, which I can only assume is oral sex. When she wouldn't, he straight up sat on her fucking face with his knees pinning her shoulders down and his hands holding down her forearms so she couldn't move. 
The witness said he wasn't supporting any of his weight and that she could not breathe. You'll remember that Grace had bruising on her chest and arms. The witness says she kicked as violently as she could, but he didn't get off of her until she played dead, hoping he would hop off. Playing dead is some of the smartest shit I have ever read. He got off of her, and when she opened her eyes, this bitch asked her, What's wrong? As if nothing happened. The fuck you mean what's wrong? You just tried to suffocate me with your ass. He literally tells her, you don't think I did that on purpose, did you? No, I accidentally butt-ass naked sit on people's faces all the time and don't get up until they play dead. Jesse then pretends to have a debilitating stomachache and tries to get her to comfort him. But within minutes, he starts spiraling, saying that she didn't want him. No one wants him. Oh my fuck. The defense asked this witness why she didn't Tinder message him, why he had almost killed her. I fucking cannot. Then they ask why she continued to message him at all, citing that she once asked, do you want to see me, though I would love to see the contact of that text because the two never met up again, despite the hundreds of messages. She said she was terrified to piss him off because the guy had found out where she lived and stalked the bus route to catch her mid-transit before they ever met for that date, so she kept the conversation friendly. I'd say that's a valid argument. She fights back at the defense team, telling them that they couldn't minimize what he had done to her. That is my fucking girl. This woman endured three hours of victim shaming a woman who almost died the exact same way that Grace Mullane may have been killed. They ask her why she didn't leave before he almost killed her because apparently she failed mind reading 101. They suggest she had gone to police just to play victim, seeming to have forgotten that police contacted her. And at one point, the defense even suggested she was just being dramatic. Seriously, this cross-examination goes on forever and gets more and more misogynistic as it does. They then admit that Jesse did in fact sit on her face, but that he wasn't holding her arms down, that his hands were on the bed. One which she denies, too, doesn't fucking matter. He's sitting on her fucking face. As they continue to poke her, she really fucks their defense up by letting them know that their client had told her he had gang connections, famous friends, and cancer, because why not? You'll be elated to know that they finally excused her. I want to send this girl a gift basket. If you're listening to this, message me. You deserve a fucking break. The next part of the day's trial focuses on Grace's autopsy. She had bruising on the front of her left shoulder. You'll remember that Jesse pinned Tinder Date 3 down using his knees to hold her shoulders down. She had bruising underneath her collarbone, on the side and back of her left shoulder, inside of her left upper arm, inside of her left elbow, and three on her right elbow, which looked to have been made from fingers. Bruises mean that blood is pumping, meaning that Grace sustained these injuries while she was still alive. A pathologist testified that many of her bruises were consistent with being restrained or that heavy weight was being put on Grace's shoulder. It sounds to me like she fought for her life. The defense gets a chance to question the pathologist, and I shit you not, out of all the questions in the world, they ask her if being super drunk can affect your breathing and make accidental strangulation more likely. And she's like, sure, when you're unconscious. So that backfired. But it backfires even more. The pathologist says that they were only able to find one case of accidental sexual-related asphyxiation, and it was one of 10 cases in a population of 40 million people. But continue, your defense strategy sounds promising. They don't. They move on to that comment made by Jesse on Grace's profile just 12 minutes before she was last seen. Police contacted Jesse when they saw it, and he was all, yeah, I was with her, but I haven't seen her since 10 p.m. that night. The police meet up with him and chat at the restaurant at the bottom of his hotel apartment, and he gives them a fake address. Don't want police walking into your crime scene cleanup. But another detective, who was doing some regular old police work, walks straight up to the front desk and asks if Jesse lived there, and of course, they said yes. So homeboy gets brought to the station. The court has shown an interview with Jesse where he goes over their conversation from him and Grace's date, and he knew the following day was her fucking birthday. He says they just went to one place and then parted ways, explaining he took a specific route to meet up with another woman because it felt safer. Even specified that she was 32. Nice touch. But ultimately says she stood him up. This guy murdered a girl and his lie to try and cover it up includes him talking about the safer route to get home. Fuck you. 
But the court is left on a cliffhanger and adjourned until the next morning where they pick up right where they left off with his interview footage. Jesse tells the detective that he's bummed because when he checked Tinder the next morning, they'd been unmatched, so he must have done something wrong. Yeah, like killed her and then used her phone to unmatch herself. This entire interview is like the sequel to Tinder Date 3's testimony. He does something unspeakable and then tries to play poor pitiful me, neither of my dates want me. But that didn't stop him. At 4 p.m. with Grace lying dead on his floor, he went on another date that lasted until 7 p.m. It just so happens that he called out of work sick. Jesse tells police it's because he had drank too much over the weekend, but it's his dad's fault, you know, because he's an alcoholic. They ask him to fill out some suspect forms, and he asks if he's being arrested for something he didn't do. They basically tell him, not yet. I really should have named this episode, not yet. Police go over his bullshit story so he can confirm it for them before they shit all over it, and shit they do. They ask if all of this is true, and he woke up at 9 or 10 the next morning. Why is he seen in his hotel elevator at 8.14 a.m. that morning with a suitcase? And that's when he knew he had fucked up. This is when we get the timeline of the CCTV footage for December 2nd, the day after his and Grace's date. At 8.32 a.m., he leaves his hotel and goes to the store and buys all the cleaning products they found in his apartment, along with some gloves and a pack of gum because halitosis is a bitch. At 10.25 a.m., he leaves his hotel again and picks up his rental car, bringing it back to his apartment around 11 a.m. At 1.33 p.m., he's seen leaving the hotel again in a new pink shirt and walking towards the parking deck. He returns to the hotel an hour later, now wearing a black shirt. That's a lot of outfit changes and one on the go. He gets ready for his Tinder date, and an hour and a half later, a little before 4 p.m., he's at a table waiting for her to join him. A little after 7, the date is over, but a rug doctor stand catches his eye. He leaves, but comes back a little after 8 to rent one. He takes it back to his hotel and uses it for half an hour and then takes it back, telling the guy at the stand that it worked. At 9.26pm, he brings his rental car to the front of the hotel, grabs a luggage carrier, and takes it to his room. Just four minutes later, he's seen with two suitcases and a duffel bag on the luggage cart and is seen putting them into the trunk of his rental car. And then he goes to bed with Grace Mullane dead in a suitcase in the trunk of that rental. He wakes up bright and early the next morning and heads to the store to buy a shovel just before 7 a.m. Two and a half hours later, he comes back to his apartment wearing no shoes and has his pants rolled up. He even brings two of the three bags back that he left with. We can deduce that the third is the one they found Grace in. Jesse takes both of the remaining bags to the dry cleaner, one which is full of muddy clothes, and the other some more clothes in his bed sheets. Around 10 a.m., he goes out and buys another suitcase. Seriously, what the fuck? There should be a federal list for people this interested in suitcases. I'm for sure on like a dozen lists for my Google search history. In my defense, it's about these cases. Douche Canoe heads to a car wash where he washes the car and one single shoe that he takes out of the trunk. He also washes off that shovel. He picks up his dry clean bags because this dude cannot live without suitcases and heads home a little before 3.30. I can only assume he also didn't work on this day. The following day, December 4th, Jesse takes his freshly dry cleaned bag to a local park and empties it into a garbage can. He does the exact same thing on December 5th. I know you've been waiting for it, so here it is. The defense tries to manufacture some form of argument here, so they're like, um, he left his hotel five more times than you told us on December 2nd? How in the fuck is this supposed to help you? Sit down. It was a very short argument. The court moves on to another witness, this time the woman who went on a date with Jesse while Grace was dead inside of his apartment. She has got to be shitting herself. They had matched on Tinder a week before, but didn't make plans to meet up until the Sunday he killed Grace. Jesse texted her at 10 a.m. and around noon on the 2nd to double-check that they were still on, though he said it was cool if she didn't feel up to it. This was between his googling of rigor mortis, large bags, vultures, and where he planned to dump the dead body in his apartment. On their date, he told her that he'd been shopping for a large duffel bag that day to fit all of his professional sports gear in since he plays for the country. She didn't remember whether he said it was for New Zealand or Australia, but both are a lie. 
He then moved on to tell her how a bunch of his friends were cops and his best friend was a prosecutor. He's literally living in a make-believe land surrounding the dumpster fire that is now his life. This is when his date tells him that she once watched a trial about a 21-year-old who went to prison for killing someone. And I shit you not, his response was that it's crazy how a guy can make one mistake and go to jail for the rest of his life, but throws in that he'd known a guy who got out of it because his girlfriend died during rough sex. Dude was already planning his defense with his imaginary prosecutor best friend. This dumbass keeps talking about murder and says that bodies just keep going missing in the Waitakeries, which is where he hid Grace's body. And that canines can only detect remains of bodies that are buried four feet and above. Wrong. The boys in the Cosmo DiNardo case were buried 12 feet deep and were detected by police dogs, but please continue. The date ended and she was freaked the fuck out. As they walked to their cars, she realized they were parked near each other, so she lied about where hers was and kept walking until he drove away. He messaged her that night saying the date was fun and that they should do it again, and she responded with, no thank you. Burn. Court adjourns after his date blows him off and continues the morning of November 13th. It's another interrogation video, but this time it's with his defense attorney on December 7th. This time, the story is much different. He says that he and Grace went out and got drunk, went back to his place where he says Grace told him she liked Fifty Shades of Grey and violent sex. And a friend of hers corroborates that she had mentioned liking sexual partners, putting their hands around her neck, and BDSM, but that it wasn't something she talked about often. Jesse said it made him uncomfortable, but he was open to new ideas. My eyes just rolled so loud that my kids thought it was thunder. According to Jesse, the two started to have sex on the bed and then moved to the floor where she asked him to hold her throat. And that's where the story ends. He holds her throat, falls asleep in the shower, and the bullshit where he thinks she went home and he goes to sleep. He says he wakes up and finds her dead with a little nosebleed and screams. At this point, he says he basically wanted to kill himself, that he didn't want to be around if Grace wasn't there. You knew her for like four fucking hours before you killed her. He claims he was terrified and didn't believe what happened, so naturally he went out and bought a suitcase. Uh, you bought a suitcase the next fucking day. Anyways, he says the entire time he thought she was going to wake up. I'm sure that's why you googled rigor mortis twice. He tells police he went and got cleaning supplies and a shovel and buried her in the Waitakeries only four inches into the ground, then dumped her belongings in the garbage at the local park. He agrees to lead police to her body. His attorney asks him why he's telling the police all this shit, and he says he wants the family to have closure. Fuck you. I think I've said that a record number of times in this episode. The next witness is an expert in strangulation in domestic violence situations. The defense asks if strangulation around the vagus nerve can result in instant death. And she's all, maybe if they're elderly and have other issues going on, so that was a fail. So the defense attorney brushes himself off and tries again. He asks if death can happen via strangulation if two people are involved having sex. She basically says that the pressure when you're moving back and forth is going to be released consistently, restarting the clock. And if someone was applying pressure consistently for 10 to 15 seconds, only one of them would be moving because the other one would be very clearly unconscious. Basically saying hard pass. Court adjourns for the weekend and starts again on the morning of November 18th, where the defense start calling their witnesses, none of whom are Jesse. Instead, they call Grace's friends to talk about her sexual preferences as if it matters, because death wasn't one of them, and even if it was, it's illegal, so let's move on. One of them was a former partner of Grace's who kind of fucks up their whole plan by being like, yeah, we had rough sex, but we had safe words and she would tap me three times if she wanted me to stop. And he did because that's what consent looks like. The defense calls an expert to go over what the last one testified about in regards to Grace's injuries. And he says, yeah, she's right about the bruising, but the one on her shoulder could be a love bite. I know we did not just refer to a murdered woman's injury as a fucking love bite. 
but I'm going to move on from that since he brought up another injury not previously mentioned, which is hemorrhaging in one of her eyes, which is common with manual strangulation. Again, we saw this in the Chris Watts murders. Blood filled Shanann's eyes as she was suffocated. They banter back and forth a bit, and then we move on to someone Grace went on a date with in New Zealand on November 30th. They met up at a bar and had consensual sex that didn't result in her dying, so this is of no use to them. This defense is straight-up slut-shaming, and it's disgusting. They call up a guy she matched with on an app for people interested in BDSM. She blew him off and never answered his call, so again, this is of no use to the defense. They're really, really ridiculously bad at this. And that's it. Well, not totally it, just for the trial. Both sides rest and give their closing arguments, summing up the entire trial. Then the judge sums up the entire trial. Seriously, there's so much summarizing going on. And the jury is released for their deliberations. It takes less than five hours for them to make a decision. The jury returns and hands the judge the verdict. They find Jesse Kempson guilty of murdering Grace Mullane. He will enjoy his shitty little jail cell for the next three months until he's sentenced in February of 2020. Yes, this year. Come February, Jesse Kempson has to listen to impact statements, one of which is from Grace's mom, and it is gut-wrenching. He is sentenced to life in prison with a minimum of 17 years. Fucking 17-year minimum? Are you kidding me? If this was America, it would be life without the possibility of parole because life actually means life. This guy is a serial predator using people's natural desire to find a partner to seek victims. Grace will never celebrate another birthday. She'll never travel to another country. She'll never see her brothers get married and have children. She'll never use the degree she worked so hard to earn, all because an entitled man-child felt like women were put on this earth for his pleasure, and when things didn't go his way, he would teach them a lesson. If he were ever to be released from prison, every single woman in his vicinity would be in danger. For all maps and photos pertaining to this case, check out her highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley. If you like your podcast ad-free, head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, where for just $1 a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If four episodes a month just aren't enough for you, for $5 a month, you get an exclusive episode available only to Patreon members on the first Monday of every month. And yes, anytime you join, you have instant access to all previous bonus episodes. I'll be bringing you a brand new case a week from today, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. And she, I'm like losing my voice. I'm going to restart the whole, why talkeries? Why is that such a weird word? Oh. Nope. Fuck me. It is so fucking hot in here. Now I'm going to have to re-say it. Why can't I fucking say that? That whole thing sounded terrible. <laughs> Don't put that in the blooper. Waitakere City. Waitakere. What the fuck? Awesome. I lost my place. This is amazing. <laughs> that still sounded fake as fuck. <laughs> fucking public. <laughs> I want to fucking take a nap now. Waitakere's.